America is the greatest country the world has ever known. We are a nation of immigrants, pioneers, and patriots. Together, we create the bold, beautiful fabric that is America. We are the city upon the hill, a beacon to the world. America is the land of freedom and unlimited opportunity. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. We the people have stories to share, stories to uplift and inspire. You will feel proud, humbled, and blessed to call yourself an American. Matias Herrera is one of those people you immediately like. His warm, charismatic personality is palpable, even through a computer screen. Matias is a Marine serving in Afghanistan when he was traumatically injured. Matias jumped on an unseen IED, immediately losing both legs. Matias is the first below-knee double amputee police officer. He is an American hero. Matias's American Story Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Matias Ferreira. They got it. There you go. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much for being here today. No, thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, before we get started with your story, I want to loosen us up a little bit. And we're going to do a few minutes here, a few seconds of this or that. You know what that is, right? Absolutely. Okay. Just kind of get us loose here. All right. Hamburger or pizza? Pizza. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Beach or mountain? Ooh, beach. Hawaii or France? Hawaii. DC or Marvel? Marvel. Okay, good. <laughs> I've had one person say DC and I had to disagree on that. <laughs> I'm Die- glad we're on the same page. <laughs> Die Hard, Christmas movie or no? Die Hard Christmas movie. Okay. Ice cream, chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Okay. And how about this last one? I, I have to ask this just because Marine or Army? Of course. You know, you got to go with Army. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I love the rivalry between the two of you. It's a good one, though. It really is a good one. I've, I, some of my best friends are in the 82nd Airborne, 173rd out of Italy. Um, so I, I have a very good camaraderie with those guys. And as soon as we get out of the military, we're all the same. Uh, but of course we have to have that background, you know, where you come from and how you were raised, you know, you don't mind being called a crayon eater then. No, you know, we actually get a kick out of it. Cause it's like, how many more nicknames can we come up with, you know, <laughs> devil dog and leatherneck and crayon eater. I mean, we, we tell it to each other all the time. So it's all right. <laughs> I spoke to someone this morning and, uh, she talk about rivalry. She was in the army and her sister was in the Marines. So oh, I'm sure awesome. they had some <laughs> really awesome. cool Thanksgiving dinners, right? Absolutely. As long <laughs> as we keep the colors out of it, we're fine. But as you can tell, we're always trying OD green. So oh, that's ready. hilarious. Well, can you start off by sharing where your story begins? Because it doesn't start in the United States. It doesn't. So I was born in Uruguay, which is a very small country uh, in South America. And, you know, as far as I can remember, you know, being a kid, my parents always gave us everything. And growing up, we thought we had everything. Um, But in our parents' views, uh, they thought that we could have such a better life somewhere else. And of course, being five, six years old, we didn't quite know what that somewhere else had been because we'd never been anywhere else. We we knew what the beach looked like because that's where uh, I was raised on the beach. Uh, So for me, it was like, okay, where are we going? 
And just being able to visit for the first time was like, okay, now I see why my parents fell in love. Um, and the first time I ever came to the United States was just to visit my uh, my mom's brother and his family, which were my two cousins I'd never met and aunt I've never met. Um, so my parents fell in love with that whole American dream lifestyle that this place gives you. We went to Atlanta, Georgia, and we enjoyed a Christmas together with our family. And then we had to go back to Uruguay. And of course, that's all we could ever think about. So my parents' goal were to get a work visa for themselves and then a student visa for my brothers and I. And one day, you know, they called us up and said, hey, listen, we're going to the United States. We have to finalize paperwork and you're going to stay with your grandma. So we're like, all right, you know, we'll stay with grandma. And my mom's mom is pretty much the person who raised me. And uh, I was totally fine with her leaving me with them. And then my older brother and my younger brother ended up with my, my dad's side of the family because they got along better with them, I guess. Uh, so we would go together as a family. And uh, my parents reached out to us and said, hey, we're moving to the United States. And we were really excited, you know, because we, we got to see our, our cousins and a lot of our family that we never even met before at such a young age. And so I remember moving to the United States. And one of the first places that we went to was Centennial Park. And it was 1996. So it was for the uh, Centennial Olympics uh, in 96. And, uh, and we're just walking around. And of course, there's a lot of vendors and uh, a lot of people walking around the, the park. And I saw this man in uniform. And I looked at my dad and as a six-year-old, you know, my dad tried to explain the best, but I was like, dad, I want to be like that guy when I grow up, I want to be a police officer. And my dad giggled and said, he's not a, he's not a police officer, he's a Marine. And I said, well, what's a Marine? And he goes, well, basically trying to explain it to a six-year-old that they're going to go fight the bad guys, foreign and domestic. And I just could never get that, that gentleman's face and the white cap and all the medals mounted on his chest, the rank insignia on his, on his shoulder. I was just like a kid in a dream, you know, kids want to be lawyers and pilots and astronauts. And, you know, I just knew I wanted to be a soldier back in the day, which is what we would know. Now we know Marines are not called soldiers, but back you in know the day, what? Just a second a here, Matthias. I barely learned that with this podcast. Yeah, we, we learned a lot. We definitely learned a lot with that. I, I had no idea. In fact, I spoke to, to one Marine and he said that he can't stand it when someone says, welcome home, soldier. <laughs> well, you know what? We got to get a laugh at it. And uh, it's an immature thing in the beginning because we're so almost brainwashed, you know, by the Marine Corps that we're the only breed and the only thing, yeah. you know, since sliced bread. But we, we do gain some respect towards the people who served before us and knowing that we never called each other you know, soldiers. But of course, other people don't know that. So I would never get upset at somebody. But if it, if another soldier called me, hey, soldier, I'd be like, come on, man, you know, you know, I'm a Marine, I'm not a soldier. And, and I also know it's not basic training, correct? It's boot camp, correct. It's, <laughs> right. camp. it's, it's these little, little differences. Very small, very small differences, you know, but we, that's how we know that you're a different type of person when uh, you know what you're talking about, the, the language and the sarcasm that comes with it, you know, but it's all good. So, but like I said, but being young, I never would have known the difference between a Marine and a soldier. Uh, but now we're, you know, we're going through the, the stages and we're going through school and playing sports and, and whatnot. And uh, my older brother, and my younger brother, always very studious kids. They love the books, they love reading. And I just love sports and being out with my friends. So you could already tell that I was kind of headed away that uh, some people are not really meant to be when they're walking down that path that want to join something like the police department or the military or fire department, just that public service. Um, I think it takes a, a specific type of person to do that kind of job. So I think it starts when you're young and when you're little, uh, jumping off trees and doing things that, you know, other kids are kind of cautious about. And so now I remember being in seventh grade and being in Atlanta, Georgia, the views of 9-11 were very different, right? We didn't have that first impact where our parents were in the towers or working in Manhattan or working in the city or working in Jersey or somewhere in the tri-state area. 
all of our parents were down south and we were we were in Georgia. So it wasn't like it was going to impact this firsthand, like it did all the kids that lived here. So I just remember our teacher used to put on the news and, and watch TV while we were getting ready uh, to start the class. And we remember seeing the plane hit on the side of the building. And we were like, what is going on? It's like a sick movie or something like Godzilla or something, right? We didn't think that was the actual life. So I remember giggling and kind of getting in trouble because it's like, wait a minute, I thought that was fake. That's real. And of course, the kids are all freaking out. And there were some kids there that had family members that, that did live in New York and, of course, would be impacted later. I just remember that day I, I looked around and I saw the kids crying and I saw people freaking out. And again, it wasn't even like people here felt that, you know, firsthand, like, oh, my God, my mom works there. My dad works there. So I just remember going home and talking to my parents about it. And I was like, what happened? And, and my parents tried to do the best they could to explain that that was a terrorist attack and what really happened. And I just remember that cycle going through my head, like repeating over and over again, like what, what these bad guys did is exactly what my dad told me when I was six years old, that these men in uniform went to fight for. So as I got older, I understood the concept of freedom and I understood the concept of the things that we have in this country are not because it is what it is. It's because people had to give so much for that freedom. Um, of course, as the, the saying goes, freedom is not free. And now I'm getting into my junior year in high school and senior year in high school and the teachers are starting to ask, oh, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And I had scholarships to go play football because I was a kicker and I played, you know, all sorts of different sports. And, and my parents really wanted me to go to college. And I was like, listen, it's not for me. I already know what I want to do. And uh, my parents kind of fought me for it for a little bit. And then once I graduated high school, I think they accepted it that I'd been talking about it for so long um, that they were like, all right, if this is what you really want to do. Then that's fine. Both my brothers are in college and I was just working at a, at a Mexican restaurant in uh, South Atlanta just kind of waiting to go into the whole process. And uh, I remember taking the ASVAB and going, all right, just a test. And I hate school, so I can't believe I have to take a test. <laughs> to do this. I thought Marines are just like, hey, I want to go and you go. But now we got to take this ASVAB. And of course, I go through the whole process and I get called for boot camp. And I am freaking out. I'm like, I can't believe this is here. Like the time is now. And uh, there's a bunch of other things that were happening in my life at the time. And uh, I was just ready to go. My parents are going through a divorce and there was just a lot going on. My, my grandfather passed away and just a lot of bu a bunch of things going on in, in my young adulthood. And so I remember getting the call. His name was Staff Sergeant Beck. He was the, uh, the recruiter. And he said, hey, listen, are you ready to go to boot camp? And I said, yes. And he goes, all right, well, somebody dropped out so you can go tomorrow. But we need you here now. And I, and I was in Florida at the time. I was in Destin with a bunch of my friends uh, on vacation. So I looked at my friends. I was like, hey, I got to go. I said, I, they called me from the Marine Corps. I, I'm going to boot camp tomorrow. Uh, and this was in like May time frame. So I remember I was supposed to go during Pearl Harbor time, like December 7th. And they were like, well, I thought you were leaving in like another four months. I was like, no, I'm leaving tomorrow. So of course I packed up my suitcase and I'm just like this nut getting ready to go on the road. And uh, I remember, you know, heading down through Alabama and I'm getting into the Florida, Georgia, Alabama state lines. And I'm starting to, you know, get anxious and I get home. And I have to go straight to the MEPS area because I had to do an initial PFT score, which is a personal fitness test. Uh, the Marine Corps does the run, the pull-ups, and the sit-ups. So they needed to do an, an assessment before we head out. So I just remember sitting there doing my test, sitting in the hotel, waiting for the morning. And it just I just kept looking at the ceiling like, you know, is it time? Is it time? And of course, now I, I, uh, I get on this bus and they tell us, all right, when we tell you to, you're going to put your heads down. So we put our heads down. We drive into Paris Island. Of course, that's the tradition that they don't want you to know where you're at. Um, and so you got a bunch of teenagers kind of going into Paris Island, like, what did we just sign up for? Why did they not want you to know where you're going? 
I think it's the the mentality, the mindset, you know, like of kind of freaking you out a little bit, you know, saying, hey, this is like a whole new thing for you in a new life. And it's breaking you before you even get off the bus, breaking you (laughs) mentally before you even get off the bus. And of course, we've all watched those videos, those very, very horrible videos of the drill instructor walking onto the bus and just screaming with which was what they call the frog voice. And like, get off the bus right now. And everybody's like screaming and yelling. There's like chaos and you have your notebook and, you know, you still have hair and you just like you're like, this is not what I really signed up for. I thought I was just going to get a gun and go fight the war, you know? So of course now this is very interesting at the time. And um, I'm looking around and everybody's scared. So I knew that we were all together. And I remember them telling me to write something on a piece of paper. I guess we were signing like a, a waiver or whatever. And my pen's not working and I'm freaking out. Cause they're just yelling at us the whole time. And I'm like looking around, they're like, don't look around. Look at, and I'm like, Oh my God, what am I doing? I'm like going over at this piece of paper with the same stupid pen and it didn't work. And of course now they come over, they tell us to go over to the section where the phones are and they have a bunch of phones lined up and they have directions on a little index card. And it says, dial this number. And this is what you're going to tell your parents. I've arrived to Paris Island safely. Do not send, you know, goods, da, 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 da. And that's it. And you bing, hang up the phone. So now we hang up the phone and then the yelling continues and we're going to get into a barber shop and they're just like, you know, sitting there and just starting to shave all your hair off. And it's kind of like the movies. And you've got a nice head of hair there too, don't you? I do. I, I do. And I've always had hair, you know, I had longer hair when I was, before I was even in the Marine Corps. <laughs> and so of course now I'm, I'm sitting there waiting and, uh, and we get into our squad base and our drone starts to come and introduce themselves. And I'm just remember looking around going, what did we sign up for? You know, 19 years old, 18, 19 years old. And I'm like 145 pounds soaking wet. I got all this gear. I was tiny. You were 145 pounds. I was 145 because I wrestled through high school. So I was always maintaining my weight. May I ask Uh, how tall you are? I'm 6'2". 6'1", 6'2". You were a skinny kid. You know, I've got one of those. My 17-year-old is like 5'10", and he's 125. (laughs) I think think we all start that way. I don't know what happens. We fill in eventually, but... uh, in the beginning, it's not like that so much. It comes with age, I think, because I was thin until probably like my mid-20s. I think it's got a lot to do with genetics. A lot of people say it doesn't, but I think genetics have a lot to do with it. Yeah, uh, all my dieting. nephews are skinny like him, but looking at you now, holy crap. I can't yeah. I, I definitely, that. I definitely didn't look like this when I was in the Marine Corps. My guys yeah. make fun of me all the time. They go, dude, if you look like what you do now when you were in the Marine Corps, I was like, yeah, I don't know. I would have gotten a different job because I was already a machine gunner and we carry the heaviest gun, so I don't know. I think my job would have been a lot easier uh, being a little bit bigger. But How yeah, much do those weigh? Uh, the, the machine gun that I carry is a 240 Bravo, weighs about 35 pounds without anything on it. Uh, and then you start adding like 100, 100 uh, clip of, of you know, rounds. And it's a 7.62, so they're bigger bullets. Uh, and they get pretty heavy. And then you're carrying a backpack of like 1,000 rounds. That's another maybe like 60 pounds, 80 pounds. So you're carrying about 100 pounds You're on carrying your, back. your weight. Yeah, you're carrying your weight basically the whole time. Yeah, and Especially then you gotta when add you're 140. More. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know how we did it. I'll, I'll look, looking back now, I laugh with my buddies and I'm like, how do we do half the things that we did? You know, but we just kind of laugh it off. And we just, uh, we like to say that it was the, the discipline that was instilled in us. Looking back now, boot camp was probably the easiest part of the entire career, you know, because all you had to do is follow instructions, do what you're told and just listen. You know, you're listening and you're learning. And, um, and I, I got, it got easier. It got easier as we went through, because like I said, we were paying attention to other people and somebody did it for you. And they said, jump and you jump. And you want to go down, you go down. If you speak, you speak. It's almost like training a dog. It's weird, you know? But like I said, looking back now, the last week was uh, very intense. We do what's called the, the crucible. And they give us enough food supply for two days. And we're going through uh, a bunch of woods and different obstacle courses. 
and uh, different things that happen. Like we have to use our bayonets and our guns and we're going through the mud. They're waking us up in the middle of the night. You have to ration your, your meals. Uh, and I just remember eating all my meals the first day. So all I had left was like some Skittles and peanut butter or something like that. And I was like, who wants peanut butter for crackers or who wants Skittles for this? You know, we're just bargaining, you know, we're trading the meals. And, uh, and of course, there's plenty of water. So all you had to do is drink water and, and you were fine. But I think that the anxiety was building in and you were like, okay, I got to eat something because I don't know when I'm going to have an opportunity to eat again. And oh, that's um, funny. it was great. It was hilarious. And now the last day is coming up and we do what's called a hump. We take our LB packs, which are big backpacks, and we, they're all stuffed with our gear, and we do a hike. And I think it was like a 13-mile hike, and your feet are soaking wet, and you're getting what's called swamp foot, and your feet are blistering, and uh, all your gear is soaking I've wet. I've seen that. Is that like where your skin falls off? Yeah, it starts peeling and stuff. Oh, yeah, it was painful. <laughs> it was so painful. gross. It was bad. It's like that for a couple of days. Oh, nasty. And, uh, and now, you know, we're, we get to the final destination where we got to get. And I remember we had what's called our, our EGA, our Eagle Global Anchor. It's like a little pendant that goes onto our uniform. And we had it in our breast pocket and we would have to take it out. We're in formation. Now your instructor comes in front of you, you present it to them and they read out this creed and they give you the, the EGA. And that's when you earn the title of the United States Marine. So of course, you know, you're like 19 years old, like shaking, like, thank you. You know, you put it back and you just stand at parade rest. People are crying. You know, it's very, it's an emotional time at that age. You know, you feel like you finally earned something. A lot of times, as you know, with sports and schools and diplomas, a lot of stuff is given, you know, you, you just have to put the minimum effort and you can get that, you know, you get it just for showing up, you just get it for showing up. That's exactly what it is. And this, you weren't getting out of there with just showing up. You had to show, you know, you had to show what you had. And at the end of the day, we're all big, basic riflemen in the Marine Corps. So we all got the same training. Uh, we all got proficient with our weapons and, and having to qualify. And so now we get this awesome meal. I think it's called the warrior breakfast. And we get to finally go into the chow hall, which is our cafeteria. And we get to eat whatever we want. We're not rushed because throughout the whole time we're there, your back is straight and you're eating like this. And they're like, all right, get up. And so you got to get up and you're like, I didn't even eat yet. And they're like, get up. And so you're just like, all right, you take your little plate and you go and you feel like you're starving the next couple of days. But at that morning, we get to eat whatever we want. I remember having hot dogs and cheeseburgers and cupcakes and soda and Powerade. I don't know. I, I stuck my face. I had a, like I was in a food coma family week comes up and now your family comes in and gets to see you graduate. And uh, that's, that's a pretty cool moment. You know, we get to do all of our drill stuff and our ceremonies. Uh, we get to march around. Our parents get to see us for the first time. We're all bald and somewhat in better shape, I'm hoping, and, uh, and ready to go home. They send you home for a week after you graduate. And then you either go to MCT, which is Marine Combat Training, or you go to SOI, which is School of Infantry, uh, which is what I went to with being an infantryman. And, uh, and so we went home for a week. And of course, I got to see my family, my friends and got a nice little re relaxation at home. Uh, and then, you know, we had to go back to North Carolina to Camp Geiger to, to begin the training. And Can I, I was stop like, you for a second. Absolutely. Tell me how your parents felt seeing you graduate as a Marine. They're from Uruguay. They come here to give you a better life. And their son is now protecting their new home. They were pretty impressed. I mean, I knew my dad knew I could do it. My mom, of course, being mom's mom's boy, uh, she wanted the best of me, but she was scared the whole time. And uh, and they were extremely proud. They were very proud, and they expressed it, you know, numerous times. And uh, they had like a little welcome home party for me, where all my friends were there, and uh, they had a uh, music and a DJ. And again, they were just super proud. As a parent, you know, I have a six year old daughter. I I look at her, and of course, I I don't even know what I would do if she told me, 
dad, I'm leaving to go do this for three months. You're not going to hear me. You're not going to see from me. Yeah. Like I call, I call every day, I call every day and we talk every day and I see her every other day because her mom, her mom and I are not together anymore, you know, but uh, watching her grow up, it's pretty much every other day and every other weekend as well. So I have her a lot of the time. And, um, and just every time I see her, she's like a new person, you know, she's developed these new habits or a new freckle or her tooth fell yeah. out or her hair got longer. And it's, it's like, man, what did my parents see when I left as this like immature kid that, you know, you had to ask him to take the trash out 15 times. So now I'm this disciplined, like, Hey, take the trash out. And I'm like, okay. You know, they were like, wow, I like what they did with you. You know, well, I'm sure it wasn't without a lot of trepidation that they let you go out. That this door. Is true. I mean, I my can't... parents were terrified, you know, my parents were terrified in the beginning because they don't know as an immigrant to this country, you know, now doing something like that was extremely I can't find any more words to use than then proud, you know, that you were going to be representing our family and our last name and for them to see the uniform and my name on the shirt and on my pants. And like I said, represent our family. It, it was a big thing for them. So I was happy that they agreed to let me go. Not that they had much choice at that point, but uh, I'm glad they, they, you know, became better at it. Well, Matthias, can I tell you that uh, we're like 20 minutes into this? You're so charismatic and engaging. I think you would make a awesome motivational speaker. I appreciate it. Thank you. I I do have that uh, the habit that if I start talking, if you don't stop me, we might be looking at an hour and a half podcast. <laughs> I don't mind people talking over the hour. I am always just a little nervous about their time and being respectful of your time. Oh, it's all good. Thank you. But you're very engaging and I appreciate that. I talked to like 30 people and you're right up there at the top so far. You're very engaging. Well, just a thought so for any future career paths you might want to go I appreciate down. that. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyway, continue Thanks. with your story. Yeah. So now we go to school of imagery and that's pretty quick. That's about a month and a half training. And that's where you develop all the skills as, uh, as your job title. Mine was machine gunner. So basically we go through a machine guns course in school and you learn how to shoot every gun and how to disassemble it, put it together and the range and field of fired and how far the weapon can shoot and how to do different things with the bullet, the trajectory around raises when it comes out and all the stuff that you had to know. And I'm like, man, if it was this easy for me to learn this stuff, because I was very passionate about it. I was like, I wish school was more like that. You know, it was like, I never really got that same feeling in science or in math of learning something, but science has everything to do with the, tra the trajectory of a bullet, mm -hmm. you know, and how far it travels and how it raises. And I, I learned all that stuff. So I guess it was just more so what I enjoyed doing. So now, you know, we go through the course and everything goes great. And they look at us and they go, well, you guys have about a week left. Uh, and then you're going to go to your battalions and we're looking at them and we're like in a week. It's like, I feel like I don't know anything. I feel like I don't know enough, you know, because when you start learning something or a trait, you feel like there's so much to learn that, you know, you're never really going to learn all of it. And uh, especially when your instructors are telling you, hey, in about a year, you're going to see yourself in Afghanistan. You better get it together. So we're like, all right, we better take this serious. And um, and so now we go through the school and we're getting ready to graduate and they're calling out uh, battalions and where we're going to be assigned to. And I heard, you know, Pereira, 1st Battalion, 8th Marine, 2nd Marine Division. I was like, yes, sir, you know, whatever. And uh, that's just right down the block uh, at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, from Camp Geiger where I was training. And we didn't get any break from there. We would go straight from SOI, School of Infantry, uh, straight to our battalions. And, of course, as a, the new guys, we come in and they debrief us and let us know who they are and the battalion commander, the commanding officer, and all that other good stuff. And uh, they let us know, hey, listen, we just got back from Iraq. We did this deployment and now we're getting ready to go to Afghanistan. And, you know, we've already been giving orders and we're looking at each other like, man, we just got here. How are we going to Afghanistan already? So I remember telling my parents, I was like, hey, you know, we're going to be 
uh, doing a workup and getting ready to go to Afghanistan in September of 2010. And right now it's uh, at this time, it's probably like, you know, I don't know, maybe I would say maybe September of 2008. No, no, I'm sorry, 2009. And so we have, you know, a year or less to get ready to go over there. At that point, I'm starting to kind of realize what I got myself into when uh, we're starting to do these real life scenarios and we're going to California and we're going to Virginia to do all these different schools and, uh, and basically get ready for this deployment. And not a year goes by. And like they said, September of 2010, your boots are going to be on ground in Afghanistan. So I remember our families come up and you basically pack up your whole uh, barracks room and you're either you put it in storage or your parents take it or whatever. And I didn't really have much. I had, you know, my bed that was assigned to the Marine Corps and a few articles of clothing. And I gave them all to my parents. And I was like, here, take this home. I'll see it when I get back. You know, not, not that I'm important. And of course, my parents were like, all right, we'll take this box and like moving you into college. And, uh, and now we have everything lined up outside. We have our packs and our vests and our Kevlar and our guns and night vision goggles. And do, we're doing a big checklist. And then we get to say goodbye. And we get on this bus and we go into the airport and we start flying. We fly over to Bargram. Uh, to Germany. We're going through Bulgaria. I mean, we went through all over the place. I just remember walking down this long, super long road uh, with one of my buddies. And I just remember looking at him and I'm going, dude, it's September of 2010. This is nine years later. We were asking to be here and be careful what you wish for, because look where we're at. And, uh, and we're just looking at each other and going, wow, this is pretty surreal. And of course, we're in the Camp Leatherneck, which is our district center. This is where all the the, the big vehicles are, the helicopters, our medevacs. So this is not an area where you're looking to get, you know, any type of small arm fires or firefights or anything. This is kind of like in the middle of nowhere with a lot of protection. And so now we're kind of zeroing on our night vision goggles and our ACOGs, which are our, our sights. And they say, hey, tomorrow morning, you know, whatever, 0400, we're, we're taking off. So they had all these helicopters in place and we have all of our gears stacked up and that's it. We get on the helicopter and we're flying. And all I look outside, I see desert, 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 no water, desert, maybe a couple donkeys or camels or whatever. And that's really about it. And I'm looking at my buddy who's from Texas. I was like, hey, is this where Texas looks like? You know, he's laughing. He's like, no, man, we got a lot of cars. We got a lot of horses and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so now the helicopter comes land. And I remember the back opening up and I'm like, oh, my God, that, that turbine is so hot. You know, I get, I'm feeling like the heat from the helicopter. And then all of a sudden the helicopter takes off and I'm like, Oh my God, that wasn't the helicopter. It is 130 degrees in Afghanistan and they were not lying. It is so hot where we were. It was like so hot. You would take your shirt off soaking wet and you would hang it. It's like a piece of cardboard. I mean, it was horrible. And of course now we're out, we're out there in Afghanistan and you know, we're trying to get a climate to the area and to the, the people and uh, where the Taliban are and who our friends are and who, the, who are the, the, the friendlies that are helping us. And uh, the first night we flipped the Humvee because it, it was nighttime. And one of the bridges collapsed. And so the Humvee flipped, you know, not, not far down, but just came off like the side of a hill. And, uh, and so we had to go and, and do uh, security around the, the convoy to make sure that the Taliban didn't come and, and flank us or ambush us or take any of the technology inside of the, the vehicles. So now we're just sitting there. And I just remember looking down my what's called 17 Charlies, which are my night vision goggles for the machine gun. And I'm just looking around. And all I see is just mountains and desert. I'm just looking around. And all of a sudden here, bullets like flying over our head and we don't even know where they're firing from you know so we're looking we're looking and then it just stops we're like man we got to get out of here i'm like this is day one we haven't even been here five hours and it's already like this and the guys were laughing at us because they go yeah they they like to do that they like to shoot at us from time to time and i'm like you guys are acting like this is normal i've never had anybody really shoot at me like that you know i mean i've got a plenty of shooting but nobody's really shooting at me 
So we're kind of freaked out a little bit. We go back to our FOB, which is a forward operating base, and we would kind of debrief with our command and see what happened, what what was problem. And so now every morning or every day, we would have a different task. We either go out and, on patrol and look for Taliban or IED or anything going on, or we would be standing post, which is basically you're standing in like a big wooden frame and just making sure nobody ambushes the uh, the place where we're, you know, the Marines are sleeping or training or doing whatever it is that we're doing. It wasn't even a couple of weeks and we took our first, uh, our first casualty and it was our Navy corpsman. That was pretty bad. You know, that was pretty bad because we were like the person, that one person that's there to help us and help mm. people was killed. You know, he stepped on an IED, lost both legs, both arms and blood. Oh. Death. It was pretty bad. You know, that was pretty bad. Um, I remember, you know, the rest of our, our corpsmen, our Navy corpsmen, because that's who our corpsmen are assigned to us. Uh, they're basically just our medics. The other one's crying and, and upset and angry. And we kind of noticed then that it was, you know, it was going to be a little bit worse than we thought. At that moment, it just really became surreal. And uh, so now we have to go back. We have to go back out and do it, do it again, over and over again. And no matter how many casualties we took or no matter how many people died, we still had to wake up and do a job. And if we didn't do our job, then people got hurt. So now we're starting to walk around patrols and boom, again, we get uh, word that another person got hit and was amputated. And then we got another call that another guy got killed and another guy got killed. And it was just like that every single other day or every other week. Um, and we were there probably like five months. And so then we moved to a place called 7171, which is a big mountaintop. And we took over the hill and we were able to observe where the Taliban were, uh, were operating out of. Our commanding officer said, hey, listen, we're going to be going to a different place in the next 24 hours. So pack up all your bags and we're going to do what's, you know, a hump, a, a big hike. And at that point, we still, we had to carry 50 calibers, which the 50 cals with a, a tripod are about 135 pounds. So you have to take the barrel off and you have to take the receiver off and you have to take the tripod off and everybody carries something uh, within the team because we couldn't take vehicles because then they would know we were coming. So now we're going at nighttime over this wadi, which is a, a open land of water. But since it's the desert, there was no water. It took us maybe, I don't know, I would say an hour, an hour and a half to get across the Wadi and over to the new compound, the new building that we were going to. And there were three teams. There was an entry team, a snatch team, an overwatch team. And being a machine gunner, I was on the overwatch team making sure that, hey, if anybody comes or anybody gets engaged with fire, we, we set, you know, the majority of the fire down range. And uh, you hear the door kick, kicked in. And we're just here, you know, clear, clear, clear. The guys are searching it with the dog and the detectors. The commanding officer says, hey, we're all good. Let's go inside, drop our gear, and you know, develop our plan. So now we go up on this rooftop, which is probably, I don't know, maybe eight feet up uh, from the ground. We used a, a fuel house pump. They used to have these mud huts, and we could jump on there and then jump on the roofs to put all of our gear up top. And uh, I just remember looking at my guys, and we were taking all of our gear off, and I go and I say, hey, listen, I'm gonna, I'll be right back. I'm going to go get the rest of the equipment. We need ammo. We need all this stuff. Just kind of bury in for the night, and then tomorrow morning we'll go out and patrol. And it was like the movies. I looked the guys and I said, I'll be right back. I jump off the roof and all of a sudden I hear boom. And then all of a sudden I hear my ears ringing and I'm like, what happened? And I'm like, just looking up. And Wait I a see, minute. Is this your traumatic injury right here? This is my traumatic injury. Oh my this is my traumatic injury. Okay, Hold on for just a second before we get to this. All right. Look at you. You're, you're, you're getting people excited and you're pulling it back. I am. I have to reel you back for a minute. First of all, I'm curious how you felt the first time you saw an injury, somebody get hurt. Scared. I saw a couple of the guys uh, catch shrapnel and stuff. And uh, where we were with, like I said, in 7171, seven, seven, we had a whole area set up 
where the doc was taking care of people and treating people and uh and guys were coming you know with shrapnel and again from the ieds on the vehicles my uh my team was always dismounted we never really took the trucks anywhere but you know seeing the guys that were inside the trucks when the ieds blast and stuff that was again it was scary they were getting tbis you know traumatic brain injuries and uh all banged up and at the time i didn't have to see anybody amputated because we had different teams um at that time so I was really the first guy to get hit as bad within my team. Uh, but again, guys that stepped on IDs that caught shrapnel and stuff, they had their legs raw, beat up, and looked like shredded meat. And I just remember seeing guys. We had one guy that had a piece of shrapnel to the face, and I was like, man, that was like one inch off, and you would have been completely blind. A lot of the times it was bullet wounds. You know, guys were getting shot. So that stuff's not as bad because compared to, like, the guys who were missing their arms and legs, it was like, okay, you put a bandage over it, you can't even really tell. But um, the other stuff, you know, like the amputees, that was just a whole different story. Had you had any close calls before? Yeah, there was a few times where uh, we were in vehicles and we got shot at and an IED went off in front of us. We had controlled detonations where our dog, um, I can't tell you so much about this dog finding so many IEDs and saving our lives. We discovered so many different uh, IEDs. So then we would stand there. They'd come and do a controlled substance uh you know, explosion, and they would monitor it. We'd move back, make sure nobody comes in to get hurt, and they'd blow them up. Or even on the side of a mountain, I was on a on like a observation post, and we went out to go down to the town to get. We had run out of food supply, so we went down to do some deals with the locals and see if we could buy some chickens, uh, so we could cook chickens. And when we were going down the hill, we stepped on an IED, and it just went click, and it didn't go off, and it didn't detonate. So they came out and had to come out and take it out themselves. Our engineers, EOD, they came out, took it out, took it out in the middle of the, in the, middle of the desert and controlled, detonated it. And uh, it was a big bomb. It was huge. I mean, I'm sure we would have all been dead uh, had that thing go off. How often were you scared? Did it get to the point where this is the way it is here? Yeah, that's the way it was after a while. You know, the first month, I think it was, even though the guys were getting hurt, I mean, I think to the point where it's like, okay, you know, this is our job. This is what we're doing. And it almost seemed like you were invincible at one point. You almost get, get like the sense of like, well, if I step on an ID, I'm dead. We just got to do our job. That's, that's just the, the easiest way to put it. Because if you worried or if you spent every single second that you went on patrol worrying about what could happen, yeah. you weren't going to do your job. You were going to be too cautious and you're going to get somebody hurt. So the technology that we had and the, the metal detectors and the dogs, they were phenomenal. So we trusted it. We trusted our guys to do the right thing. But there were so many times where if it had rained or uh, if the locals for some reason were paid off by the Taliban, we wouldn't know where, where these things were hidden. But there was times where we had the locals helping us out. We'd tell them, hey, listen, if you help us out, we'll figure out how to repay you in a sense. So we would tell them like, hey, put an apple where you think there's an IED. So when, if we saw an apple, we knew, hey, don't go over there. Let's send our, our EOD team and investigate a little bit further. And that worked a few times too you know, where those guys saved our life. The, the people there didn't, didn't want to hurt us and they didn't want anything bad to happen to us, but they were terrified of the Taliban coming there and killing their entire family. So at one point or another, they had to pick and choose a bunch of strangers or their family. And I don't blame them. You know, I don't blame them for not being bought out, but just being so uh, scared. I don't think that most of you understand how incredible the things that you've done. Because for most of us, there is no way in hell that I could do that. I couldn't, I'd be absolutely petrified. And maybe that's why there's only 1% of you that do that. 
I'll be honest with you, for the longest time, I thought that, you know what, we just say that. We say we can't do something until we have no other choice to do it. Um, I think that if I had to put you in the situation to do it, you might be scared and then you might develop some type of understanding of why you're doing the job that you're doing. Like I said before, I think that it takes a special person to volunteer to do it. Um, and that's something that kind of sat with me for a long time after I started speaking to Vietnam veterans. They used to look at me and go, hey, Junior. And I'm like, yes, sir. And they go, you know the difference between you and me? And I go, what's that, sir? And he goes, I didn't volunteer for this shit. Mm, yeah. And he goes, I went once and that's it. You guys sign up to do it voluntarily and you go back and you go back and you go back and you go back and guys have five, six, seven, eight deployments and they spend their 20 years deploying overseas to different war zones. This war has been going on for 20 years. And now, of course, we're getting to where we're getting, which is another conversation. But I, I don't really think that the war was intended to be this long. You know, I think that we lost the... Uh, understanding or the knowledge of what we were there to do. I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that we would all agree that we should have left there a long time ago. But the fact that we didn't leave there so long ago, we had to at least develop a new plan or a new goal or a new mission or some kind of statement. But I think a lot of people were there just because of the same thing that I signed up for. Hey, 9-11. And you just couldn't yeah. let it go. You know, you just could not let it go. It's like 9-11 until every Taliban is dead. We don't want this war to end. And that's not going to happen. You know, these guys are unfortunately threatening their people with, you know, with their lives and their families' lives. And until the Taliban is completely obliterated, they're going to continue to recruit and they're going to continue to take good people who are fearful of these other people leading this. And they're just going to continue to, to create a, a, a larger beast. So I think that that statement is true to a capacity that you wouldn't be able to do it. But I think that if I told you that you had no choice, like unfortunately, the Vietnam era, you would end up there and you would have to do the best you can to get back to your family. And I think essentially that's what, you know, we all do. Or else I'd go and hide in the darkest corner. I I don't know if you'll look so good, at least not in the Marine Corps. I I don't think you could be in the Marine Corps hiding. I think you'd get pulled out of your hair, you know? Gosh. All right. What day is this then with your traumatic injury? So January 21st, 2011 is the, uh, the date of the injury. Okay. Take me back to that day then again. So now, like I said before, we, we left our safe environment uh, at 7171, and we went over to this new compound. And again, what happened was we had taken out all the enemy threats in the area that we were working, or at least pushed them south. And there was another town that was letting us know the Taliban were there. They were trying to hurt us, and they were going to hurt them. And so, of course, our mission was to eliminate the threat. So we decided to pick up all of our stuff, move into a new building, which is a little ways away in a different town start our patrols and our routine patrols the same thing we had been doing just somewhere else so once you know we went into the compound uh like i said earlier we we were told that it was clear that there was no injury you know nobody was there uh there's no taliban there's no ieds there was no nothing and everybody got a little complacent you know we all got we felt safe we put our stuff down we go on the rooftop and as soon as i tell my guys they put and i jump off the roof i land on a 30 pound bomb what happened was that it was hidden on the ground and they ran what's called command wire to a pressure plate so they run a metal signature to these wooden blocks and these things, basically, when you touch them together, uh, they make the, the spark and it, it sets off the IED. We all went up it and it was, I think it had rained a couple of days before, it was stuck, you know, so this, this pressure plate wasn't creating any friction. But once I jumped off of it with all my gear on and everything, that's about 200 pounds of stuff, it slapped it and, you know, the bomb went off. And with the bomb going off, I don't remember the initial pain. I just remember being on my back and looking up and I see these like little lights flickering all over the place. And I I didn't really know uh, what happened. And I just kind of went into shock. 
And I remember just hearing everything muffled, do not move, look for secondaries. And it was the sound of my captain telling guys don't move because what happened was the Taliban would put an ID here and then they would put another one here. So when you got hurt here, the person running to grab you, okay. step on an ID as well. And now you have two casualties out of the fight, two soldiers, Marines, airmen, uh, <laughs> Navy, whatever. I mean, anything, anybody who's out there. So any, any service member that would step on this would, you know, eventually be out of the fight. I just remember my doc, Casey, Tommy Casey, running up to me and going, hey, buddy, you're going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. And I didn't really know what was going on. So I was like, okay, all right, no problem. And I just remember like looking down a little bit and I started seeing blood all over my uniform. And I was like, man, I must have stepped on an ID. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, hey, man, how bad is it? You know, he's like, no, you're good. You're all right. And he gives me my first dose of morphine and I'm starting to feel really cold and I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, what happened? Uh, and they're all crying and they're like, hey, Ferrari, you're going to be all right. Because they used to call me Ferrari uh, in the Marine Corps. Ferrari, you're going to be all right. And I'm like, all right. And all I hear is, bravo, Mike Foxtrot, 7229. And I start hearing what's called the nine line medevac being put over the radio. And that's basically giving our grid coordinates to our helicopters for them to land on a LZ and a landing zone and basically be prepared on the, on the helicopter with blood supply. Because when you step on an IED and you have some type of traumatic amputation, you're losing a lot of blood. And the only thing stopping it is, you know, these tourniquets. And so, of course, when they're doing Bi- uh, Bravo Mike Foster, Bravo was the company I was assigned to. Mike is the phonetic alphabet for, for M and Foxtrot is for F and 7229 was the last of my social. And of course, like they're giving out all the blood supply and whatnot. It seemed like it was like 45 minutes I was sitting there, but really it was a lot quicker. I think it was like 20 minutes. There was already a helicopter in the area. And so I remember the helicopter coming in and they picked me up in this litter and they're all like taking me out to the landing zone and my buddy McCardle's rifles hit me in the face. And I just remember going, hey, asshole, just kind of slinging him off. And uh, he's like, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. And they're all crying. And I'm like, hey, it's all right. It's all right. It's going to be okay. And I'm like starting to kind of get a little tired at that point. I guess the medication mm-hmm. started wearing the blood loss. And I remember them putting me on the helicopter and you get a kick out of this. I was already starting to hallucinate a little bit because of the morphine. And I was just like shot that I remember two green lights over here and over here. And I'm thinking it's like aliens or something. You know, I'm like, what is it? And they start looking at me and they go, you're going home soldier. And I go, I'm not a soldier. I'm an effing Marine, you know, whatever. And so they just start laughing because they're, they're all, they're army. And so they start laughing and they throw up the thumbs up. And I just remember going out and I passed out and must have fell asleep. And I woke up in, in Bagram, which is a small airport in Afghanistan, uh, where they would begin, you know, emergency surgery to stop the bleeding and uh, stabilize me. And then they would send me over to launch tool Germany, which is where they do the, uh, the emergency surgeries. They stabilize everything. They have you on medication. They put you on the IV drops and whatever else. And they contact your family, let them know that, Hey, you're stable or you're not stable or whatever the case is. And then they, uh, they get you, you know, ready to go to back to Walter Reed in, in Washington. Were your legs blown off immediately? Yeah. Both legs were gone okay. below the knees uh, immediately. I didn't know that until okay. Germany. Uh, that was the I, next when I, question. Yeah. When I woke up in Germany, I remember looking down and they had those like uh, ace bandages, like the white ace bandages around my legs. And I just remember looking down. And I'm like, what happened? You know, and I looked at the nurse she's like, well, you stepped on an IED and, you know, you lost your legs uh, below the knees. And I'm just thinking like, OK, what else am I going to say at that point? I was so medicated that I don't think I could have fought that anyway. But I just remember saying like, you know, she goes, well, where do you know where you're at? And I'm like, I don't know how to say the name. It's like Lama Stool or something. You know, and I, <laughs> she's laughing. She's like, yeah, you're in Germany. And I said, okay. And so they, they stabilized me there. And basically they were just like, hey, in 24 hours, I'm going to fly you back to the United States. And I just remember it was always thumbs up. I just like thumbs up everybody to death because I my mouth was dry. I got cotton mouth. I couldn't, 
really talk too much just from all the, you know, the nasal cannula and everything else I had going on. So yeah, that's when really everything kind of started becoming a little bit more real of my injury when I saw that and she talked to me a little bit and, uh, and they put me on the hel- on the plane, you know, we, we go on a, pl- on a helicopter and then a plane back to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in DC. I'm always amazed you have this happen and it must be shock. You don't feel anything. I mean, I, the, the one thing that I did remember was I broke my pelvis and shattered my femur uh, with the injury. And the only thing I, I don't remember the legs hurting. I just remember my femur and my pelvis. That hurt so stinking bad, you know, because the femur broke in half and, and the pelvis separated. So uh, that was a pretty severe injury that they had to put it what's called an external fixator uh, on both sides of my pelvis to stabilize the pelvis. And they did an exter- uh, internal rod inside of my, my right femur. They stabilized that and then I didn't have to have an external fixator for it. But that was the most painful thing. I think it was like, it was like a bruised feeling. It's like, you know, when you have a bruise and you push on it, mm-hmm. it felt like that times a thousand. It was like, oh my, any sense, any movement was like super sensitive. You know, it's crazy. I remember everything, which is, I guess, the part that I didn't have a TBI. Sometimes, you know, I look back and I'm like, I can't believe how much like, I can still remember from the actual night. You know, I remember being freezing cold because they cut my clothes off. And like I said, it's 130 degrees during the day, but at nighttime it drops like 90, but it feels like it's 20 just because of the difference in the temperature. I remember they cut all my clothes off because they had to start seeing if I had any other uh, injuries. And I was just like, oh, I'm so cold. They put a blanket on me and they're like, all right, all right, all right. You know, and, I'm, and there was a really nice man who um, gave me a little bit of jello on the plane. I'll remember that. I don't remember what color it was, but I remember he gave me some jello because I was like, I'm dying of thirst. Can you please give me water? And then you can't have any solids or liquids because you're going to be put in an x-ray machine and a CAT scan and this and that and the other. So we weren't really allowed, but he was like, all right, just don't tell nobody. So he gave me some jello. And I'm like, thank you, God. I'm just like, give me another one. But, I hope uh, it wasn't red. That's the big no-no with those machines, right? The red dye. Yeah, I have no idea what color it was. It must <laughs> be like orange or yellow. I doubt it was red. Well, how long were you in Walter Reed? Yeah, so now I get to Walter Reed and they told me that that's where I would do rehabilitation. So, you know, the rehabilitation time they said can take as long as, you know, a year or two or three. It just really depends on you. And uh, I ended up spending from time of my injury till the time I medically retired out of the Marine Corps was I got hurt in January 2011 and I medically retired May 30th of 2012. So a little bit over a year, about maybe a year and three months, year and a half. And when did you really grasp that you had no legs? I mean, I, I know you said the nurse came in and told you, but did you really have an understanding of that? I don't think I really understood that I was missing my legs, to be honest with you, until after I got out of rehab, you know, until I was on my own, I was living in my own apartment uh, because through the whole rehab process, you know, you're there with other amputees. So it's kind of like, we like to call it the new normal. So that was kind of our new normal. We went into the MATSI, which is the military advanced training center. And, uh, and we would do rehabilitation, learn how to crawl, walk, jog, run type of thing. And me putting on prosthetic legs was never really like, oh, I'm missing my legs. You know, I was like, put my legs on. But it wasn't really until I left the care of the hospital and I was on my own, again, as a person and somebody who has to take care of themselves until I was in, a, in an apartment. I, I moved out of the hospital setting. I was going to school in Washington and um, I had an apartment. And so, of course, when I had to get up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom, I had to go to the gym. I'm like, you know, this sucks. You know, this really sucks. And I wasn't comfortable yet. Now I've come a long way. I'm a lot more comfortable than I was. A lot, a lot of times I forget and, you know, I have to remind myself like, hey, you know, slow down a little bit, guy. But yeah, it wasn't really till about a year and a half afterwards that I was like, hey, you really don't have legs, buddy, you know, and it's going to be all right. That was really tough to grasp at that point. Did you ever experience anger, depression? 
you know what's funny? I had this conversation with so many people, and I think I had, I don't know if I was blessed in this sense or I was lucky, whatever you decide you want to call it, but I came from a Christian background, so I knew that God had a plan for me. That was like number one, and that was the most important thing, and my family reminded me of that. Number two, I was surrounded by people all the time. My mom, my, my mom quit her job to come stay with me, basically be my caretaker. Uh, my dad spent like three months with me uh, at the hospital. My older brother, my younger brother was here. My sisters, my cousins, like friends, my Marines, people were always around. I was never alone. So the only time I ever got angry was when I couldn't do something like I would see guys already kind of made me a couple steps ahead of me and they were running and I was walking and then I'd be like, damn it, I want to walk. You know, I was frustrated. So I wouldn't say that I was ever angry because of my injury. I was definitely upset at the fact that I had to relearn how to do everything. I mean, there's certain things that people are like, hey, what are things that you can't do now that you could do then? And I'm like, look, the only thing I can really come up with is cut my toenails, which nobody really cares about that. All right, that's number one. And number two is <laughs> handle a soccer ball like I used to because I was a soccer player because you can't really move your ankles. They're fixed. So I have to kind of like juggle the ball with my toes, which is very frustrating. But that's really about it. I was like, everything else, I've really adapted to life tremendously because of technology and because of the engineering department and because of the people that came before us and think that I was given such good care at the hospital uh, at Walter Reed and Bethesda Medical, because that's where I ended up, that I really didn't have any excuses uh, as to why I couldn't do things. I mean, I was getting the best technology, the best care, uh, the best doctors, medicine, everything. I couldn't say anything. I went from being in a wheelchair to, you know, running Navy five miles, Army 10 miles, half marathons, jumping out of a plane, scuba diving, driving a car, riding a motorcycle. I mean, I've been able to do so many things that there was never a point where I was like, man, I'm mad. I'm mad at this or I'm mad at that or I'm mad at them. It was just one of those things that I kind of accepted it, I guess. Those legs are incredible too. When I found out how much those things cost, holy cow. I run. I have done, I have done a lot of running in my past and now more so because of my job. Um, I try to do the best that I can to stay in, in good shape. I do jujitsu, which is kind of like my cardio now. I, I really enjoy uh, Brazilian jujitsu. I got into it because of my job. I thought that there was a lot going on in our world and our country right now where law enforcement officers have to uh, learn a lot more of hands-on stuff. And when I started doing jujitsu, I felt like, you know what? I'm like, wow, this is a really good cardio and it beats running any day. So I decided to start doing that. But I do run. Sometimes I have to remind myself, I'm like, you know, even when I had my legs, I didn't want to run a mile or a mile and a half or two I miles hate running. I hate it. I like biking. That's kind of one thing, you know, my girlfriend and I do. We, we like to bike. Yeah, the running just I never really found it to be fascinating, but I know that it does what it's supposed to do uh, in the sense of cardio. So I do it. Yeah. For someone who doesn't like to run, you've done a lot of running. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did a lot more running when I was his size. I, I haven't done that kind of running at this weight. <laughs> How do you go then from being a Marine to being a police officer? How does that work? So a lot of people know that being in the military and law enforcement has a lot of the same characteristics. Uh, The jobs are very, 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 very different. I will tell you that right now. I thought that it was going to be a lot of the same stuff, but it's very different. The few things that they do have in similarity is that you are working as a team, that you are in some sort of a regiment with discipline. Uh, You're carrying yourself as a professional, you're handling weapons, and you're also learning to communicate with people. Communication being one of the most important things. When I got out of the Marine Corps, I was like, man, I would really love to be in something like the police department um, because it's kind of what I've always wanted to do is be in public service and help people and be in a uniform and be a part of something bigger than myself. And I know it sounds cheesy, but it's true because I feel like every time I do something for myself, it's like, all right, I did that. Now what? But with being a part of something else, there's always some more goals. There's some 
uh, things that you need to change or better yourself at. Or sometimes we look at things about ourselves and we're like, yeah, I don't need to change that. But people are like, yeah, you kind of do. That's kind of annoying or whatever it is. And we learn to work together with other people. Coming from a big family, I never really liked to do things on my own. So I figured, you know what? If I can be in a uniform, if I can still deal with people and help people and always be that person who stands up for what's right, then I think that career will be for me. But it wasn't until, you know, maybe six years later that that happened, because in the midst of me going to college and going, hey, this isn't really for me. I got into the union uh, in New York. I started working as a steam fitter with Local 638. And that's basically somebody who works on HVAC systems and big some of the big towers that, that you'll see in Manhattan and basically all over the place. In the midst of all that stuff, I was playing on a softball team. We basically were a team comprised of all uh, amputees from the war. It didn't matter what branch you were in, but we were traveling the country playing against able-bodied teams. And those teams consisted of first responders, police officers, firemen, uh, other military service members. And we didn't play against any amputees. We just played able-bodied teams. And we would run into these police officers and, and that just kept getting in my mind. It's like, man, I want to do that. I want to be able to help. I want to be able to be the person who sets the example or sets the bar. The issue was that I was on Google and I couldn't find anybody that was a double amputee. And I was like, well, I see there's guys that are single below the knee amputees or above the knee amputee or something, but not double. And if there were a few double amputees and they decided to work behind the desk and I didn't want that. I wanted to be you know, a law enforcement officer on patrol. While I was working and working with these kids and whatnot, I, I took the written exam for the Suffolk County Police Department, which is in New York. And I scored high enough, surprisingly. I don't like tests. And they called me and they said, hey, you have your physical. Now, that similar to the military, instead of running the three miles, we run a mile and a half. And it has to be at a certain time uh, based on your age. And so I had to run a mile and a half. And I think it was like 1238. You had to do a certain amount of push-ups and a certain amount of sit-ups. So I go out to take the test and people were looking at me like, whoa, you know, we've never seen this before. So they pulled me aside and they go, hey, do you have proper documentation stating that you're physically fit to be a police officer? And I said, yeah, I do. I said, you know, here's the list from the VA. And they were like, okay, I mean, we guess we can't really tell you no. So I take off running. It was my fault. I just went to my process and I said, listen, I want to build some legs for running and, and more so like so I can get some speed, you know, because like they're heavy. And if you can cut some of the weight off the carbon fiber, then I could run better. Well, I'm in the middle of running and all of a sudden one of my back plates of my prosthetic, which never happened before, like tweaks and it moves to the right. So now I'm kind of like running limped, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to fail this. And I'm like, yep, I'm about to fail. And I fail. They're like, what's up with this guy? Why is he running that way? I know. So now they looked at me and of course they go, sir, you know, you failed your, your running portion. You have one or more opportunity. You can take it in two weeks. If not, you're going to have to restart the whole process. You have to take this, the, the, the written exam and everything else. And I'm like, man, you know what? I went home. I just remember telling my family, I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to do this. It's not for me. And, uh, and I give up. And for some reason, my daughter at the time was two. And I just looked at her and I was like, I cannot quit. Because if I quit, then I'm setting the example to my daughter that it's okay to quit. And then I'll look back and go, dad, why didn't you do what you loved? And I'll say, because I quit. And I never wanted to be that way. So I, I started running again in the track. I didn't try anything through gaze yet. I just put on my regular running legs that I used to train with. I got on the track. I used to monitor myself. And I'm like, wow, I'm doing good. I'm fine. I can keep doing this. And uh, I go back to take the test. I do the push-ups. I pass. I do the sit-ups. I pass. Now the run. I go back out. I put my penny on. I just start running. And everything else just blanks out. I just, I'm just running. And I'm just thinking about all the things that I've ever wanted to do. And now, you know, I'm sitting on this track. And I remember them saying, last lap. And I looked down at my watch. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to make it. I have plenty of time. I have like three minutes to do one lap. I said, I got this. And I'm just like running and I'm getting faster, you know, because I'm like excited now. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm coming to the end 
And I, I remember hearing him say, time, and like, pass. Oh, it passed. And I'm like, like screaming at myself because as an athlete, we were always told, act like you've been there before, right? Pretend like you've been there before. Pretend like you've succeeded before. Pretend that you've passed something or overcame something. And at that moment, I kind of kept in my emotions and everybody was like, yeah, yeah, you know, and I remember everybody cheering me on. And I went inside and I started the process. And then the next thing, which is a little awkward, was the, the physical, uh, the, you know, the, the, the medical. And I remember the doctor telling me, hey, take your shoes off and just get on the scale. And I was like, hey, do you mind if I keep my shoes on? I didn't bring a shoehorn. And they go, you need a what? And I said, I need a shoehorn. And they go, you need a shoehorn? I said, yeah, I'm an amputee. And they start laughing. And they go, what do you, what do you mean you're an amputee? I said, well, I'm missing both my legs. And she's like, really? And she's like, wow. She's like, I've never seen this before. And uh, she goes against the doctor and the doctor makes me get on the scale. They weigh me and they're like, hey, can you take a squat? Can you get on a knee? Can you jump? And they were making me do all these things. And I was like, yeah, I can, I can do this stuff. So now they're like, okay, sounds good. We just need your medical records from the VA and you know, you're all set. So I gave them the medical records and, and the doctor's notice saying that I'm physically fit and I'm able to do the physical fitness test. And now I do like, you know, the medical where I have to do a um, psychological examination. We talked to a doctor and he was like, you ever been angry? I'm like, no, sir, I'm going to be happier. And I said, how can I be angry at people that have opened the door for me, even when I was in a wheelchair, you know, so they knew the whole thing. Yeah. And so of course I get a letter now that I passed that. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I only have one more thing. And that's what everybody's terrified of is the polygraph, you know, oh. and I have nothing to lie about because I've never done drugs and I've never done anything stupid as a kid. So now, you know, I go to do the polygraph and they, you know, put the machine on and I do that and I'm freaked out because it's a very uncomfortable feeling. You know, you got this heart monitor and like, you know, this watch thing. And I'm like, all right. So now I, I continue on with the whole thing. And, uh, and we finish up like, okay, all right, just we'll give you a call if everything goes okay. And now I'm at work with my boss because he was my uh, partner on the job. And uh, I get a call from Suffolk County services or something on my phone. And I go, this answer the phone. They're like, is this Matias Ferreira? And I said, yeah, this is Matias. And they go, um, you still want to be a police officer. And I'm like re- reliving the dream of the whole Marine Corps thing again. And I look at my part, I'm like, so much for the two weeks notice, right? And he just starts laughing. He's like, don't worry about it, just go. And, uh, and I said, yes, sir, I do. And he's like, all right, Monday morning, 0700. I'm like, okay, no problem. So now I go home and I'm like, you know, of course, excited. I tell my family and that I'm getting on. And, you know, basically that's where my whole career started with the police department. That was five years ago in September. Again, it seems like everything that I do is in September for some reason. Maybe that's a lucky month. What are you doing now with the police force? Started off in patrol. I, I worked in a town called uh, town of the town of Babylon. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with with the area, but it's town of Babylon's in Long Island uh, in Suffolk County. And uh, I did patrol for about a year and a half on what's called two tour, which was days and evenings. And then I opted to go to midnight. So then I worked for midnights for about two years. Why did you want to go midnight? I just felt like that's where the action was. You yeah, know, but, that's why you know, I'd stay away from it. Well, well, that's kind of why I felt like you know what I, I want to be busy. I want to. You can tell busy, I'm so. the complete opposite of you, huh? It's all right. Listen, I'm starting to be a little bit more like you every day. <laughs> so I left there and I went to the community relation bureaus to work a little bit with them because, uh, you know, they said, hey, we, we could use a, another police officer who's Spanish speaking and um, has a good time speaking with the public and, you know, setting a good example. So I went with them. And then while I was working there for about eight, nine months, I get a call from the XO um, at the police academy. And they go, hey, listen, we're going to have a positioning opening up. It happens to be our drill guy who does our drill and ceremonies. Uh, basically the guy that yells at the recruits and, and whatnot, kind of like the Marine Corps. He's also Spanish speaking. So that would be awesome if we can get another military guy here and Spanish speaking. I was like, well, you know, what's the schedule like and what's this and that. And unfortunately at the time I was going through a divorce and I felt like, you know what, the schedule Monday to Friday weekends off seven to three was going to be amazing for me. Cause then I could make anything work with my daughter, which is what my plan was when I was working on the other, uh, another job. And so now I said, okay, no problem. So I went in for an interview and I, I talked to, you know, the whole staff 
and they said, man, you'd be a great fit here. You'd be a great representation of what the police department is. You'd be an inspiration for the recruits. Um, and of course, you'll pick your topics that you want to teach. And, uh, and I said, okay, no problem. You know, I've never really had the thought of being like a, like a teacher or a PE teacher, uh, but I do know a little bit about drill and I'll continue to study and get better at it. And, you know, I'm hoping that my story inspires these recruits, these new guys coming in to never quit and never give up. No matter what obstacle they, they face, they can overcome it. And, uh, and that's where I've been now for almost two years. I've been at the police academy as a police instructor. There is so much going on today that has to do with both of your fields, with police officers, with what's going on in Afghanistan. And I'm curious to know what thoughts you have on both of those as far as how maligned the police are right now, that you're the bad guys about everything that you did in Afghanistan, everything that you sacrificed. And there's no really, there's no really good answers there, right? But I'm curious how you feel about both of those. I mean, I think it's pretty simple. I'll start with the police department because that's kind of what I know now. I think the police department is still continuing to do the things that it used to do before. I think that we have a whole new generation of policing to adapt to. And I sincerely feel that, especially the people that I work with and the the example that I've seen throughout the country as law enforcement officers, that we're doing a good job. I think there's bad in every field, unfortunately, because it's just the human nature of it. I think that there are police officers that unfortunately lose their train of why they started in the beginning. But I think that that's a very, very minimal number. And even just to talk about my department, my, de- my department is absolutely amazing with their hiring process, the people that are there, the communities. The communities are just like anything else. We don't just go, commun- uh, go to a Hispanic community. We have Black, we have White, we have Hispanic, we have the Asian community, we have, we have the gays, we have transgenders, we have everything that we've adapted to in the past like 10, 15 years, I would say. And uh, all the training that we've gotten in the recent years are adapted and tailored to that specifically. And some people think that law enforcement officers are bad. We're not all bad. And I'm hoping that I'm, you know, a representation of what the majority is. And I see that in patrol constantly, or even now that I'm at the academy, I see the way that these people, because it's not just men and women coming to the department, it's all sorts of different types of walks of life. It doesn't have to be just military. I mean, we do have a big number of military, but we have people that have been there and done that, have done other careers, they've been engineers, they've been doctors. I mean, we've had people leave really good careers to come be police officers. And I think that it's because it's a calling. I think it's, it's a calling and, and a lot of people laugh at that, but I think it is because it's just like the military where you are sacrificing your life potentially every single day for the better good or for people you don't even know. I think that America has to understand that police officers, yes, we're a little hurt right now because of everything going on, but I think majority of the police officers are, are in it for the right reasons and we're not going anywhere. You know, we're going to continue to do the job, whether you're mad at us or not. Uh, I'm still going to respond to your call. Um, I'm still going to take care of your child that's, God forbid, something happened to or somebody who was shot or somebody who was uh, dealing with a medical emergency. We're all EMTs in Suffolk County. Uh, so we respond to more medical calls than we do police calls, it seems like. Uh, we go into burning fires. We've gone into schools. We've had active shooters. We've, I mean, in just a five-year career, I've seen all that stuff. Um, I feel like I've done more in the police department in five years than I did in the Marine Corps in combat. Wow. So, um, you know, I think that I think that has a lot to say um, about police officers that we love our job. We love our career. We love the communities we work for. And we know the job is difficult and it's going to continue to get difficult until we figure out a solution. So I think we're fine there. And to talk a little bit about Afghanistan, you know, I've been out of the loop for so long. I have many friends that are still in. I think that, like I said earlier in, in the beginning of the podcast, I think that as long as we continue to make this a political thing, we're always going to be in trouble. 
All right. I think we have one of the best militaries in the world. We're all over the place helping so many different people, so many different causes, so many different countries. And Afghanistan has just been a war that a lot of people have questions and they're valid. They're very valid questions. Why are we still there? What are we doing? We'll give the people an answer. And then people won't have so many questions anymore. But I don't think that question's really been answered. A lot of people that I've talked to, my friends are like, well, we're there for the poppy. We're there for this. We're there for the oil. We're there for, I'm like, dude, I was there for 9-11. The people that I enlisted were there were for 9-11. When we killed Osama bin Laden, when we took out a lot of the Taliban, I was okay with leaving. We got what we wanted. We took out the bad guys. But unfortunately, those bad guys continued to, to replicate, right? So then at that point, we have to find out as a military, what are we doing? What is the answer? Because I think that my answer was we're here to win the hearts and minds. Fine. I understand that. We helped so many locals. We helped so many people find some type of freedom and comfort in their own country when they couldn't find that on their own. I think that's why so many people in the military like myself are angry right now because we just picked up and left everything. We let people down that we told that we would help. And I understand that a lot of people are like, well, that's not our country. and Those are not our people. I understand that. But when you have a big brother... And he defends you. He doesn't defend you from just one bad person. He defends you from all bad people. And we were there to help. And I feel like we we're starting to let those people down. I, I don't think that we answered that call the way we should have. But again, I'm just a very small, minute piece of the puzzle. And I, I feel like the guys that are still serving right now, they're doing the exact same thing that I did. They're following orders. They're doing what they're told because that's what we do in the military um, in a chain of command. And they want to serve their country and they want to do right. So I just hope that that these higher ups and that our politicians continue to find answers and, and find solutions because that's what it comes down to. I don't know the politics of the war. I just know what, what I did. I know that it wasn't in vain and I know it wasn't for nothing. We helped a lot of people, but just like I can say that, I know that our interpreters and the community and the people there helped us out a lot too. We came back as different people. A lot of boys who signed up to be Marines came back as men, people who felt like they were protectors and they helped people who were you know weak or not as strong or capable of, of having a voice. You know, that's my opinion right now. And again, it, it varies too on different days. Some, some <laughs> days I may be a little bit more anxious or, uh, or angry about, you know, what we're doing. But again, that, that's not my field anymore. And I just, I pray for those guys and girls that are over there, you know, fighting for our freedom because I'm not there anymore. So I know that somebody's doing it for us. This is a really hard week. And I've seen a lot of posts from other people that have had on the podcast and they are really upset. They're mad. Are you okay? I'm upset. I am upset. I'm not going to say I'm not upset. I think that upset and mad are two different things. I'm not mad because I think mad brings anger into the whole equation, which becomes irrelevant to anything you do. I'm upset because I saw the post like you probably saw and more because I have buddies who are still in who are posting pictures of our interpreters and the kids that we saw as kids who are now probably teenagers and the influence that we had on them, hoping that we brought peace and comfort to them, they would find a way to raise themselves a little bit better than they were raised in a war zone, because that's what's going on. These kids are being raised in a war zone and they are being thrown in you know, the den of wolves that, to do what the adults did. And these kids don't deserve that. These kids deserve to play with toys and to play with dolls and to go to school and to get an education, do everything that my daughter's doing. So as a parent, I have a very hard time understanding what our presidency is doing, what our leaders are doing. Again, I understand I'm a nobody to be getting answers, but for somebody who gave something for this country, I would at least expect for our country to have an answer as of why we did what we did and why hundreds and 
thousands and probably millions of people are going to have some kind of effect because of the decisions that are being made without understanding of why they're doing it. It's such a complicated issue. I had Jason Redman on here. Do you know who he is? Oh I know of He's phenomenal, but I read his book before I had him on. And one of the things that he talks about that was so frustrating over there is you would capture a bad guy because that's what you were there to capture a bad guy. And then for political reasons, that bad guy oh. was released. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, so- does that sound any different? Does that sound any different than the bell reform right now in law enforcement? Yeah. It, that's just, like I said, anytime we get political with something is how it ends up. It's out of our hands. So yeah. again, now we're doing what we're told because that's what our job is. You have to follow orders um, and obedience in the military. And so we do what we're told. So it's like, if they tell you to capture someone, you capture them. You tell them to release them, you release them. And of course you're not searching for answers, but now I think that, that America deserves answers. I saw something, I can't remember which news station it was on, but they were talking about how we as Americans feel. This is what made me angry about how Americans feel that we we consider, we think we have the strongest military in the world, and yet we have been defeated by the Taliban. And I just thought, you know what? Number one, the biggest thing is the military were not allowed to put in the full force of the military. Mm-hmm. It would have been a different function, game altogether, but you we were function over. We, we function under the Geneva convention. So we have a convention. We have people who regulate these rules and, and, uh, articles, I guess you could say in the military for somebody to say that we do not have the strongest military in the world. They don't know what we're capable of doing as a military. And listen, I say that wholeheartedly and a hundred percent capable of saying that I've seen some of the things that we did. And I know that there are men out there doing a billion times more things that we're doing. So I can only imagine what we would be capable of doing if we had all these forces put together. So I don't, I don't really get angry when people say that, that we were defeated. We were not defeated. We are in a, in a very tight position, like you said, because if it was up to certain people that I've talked to, they'd say, hey, drop bombs and, and call it a day. But the problem is you can't, you can't just yeah. drop bombs because there's so many civilians, there's so many innocent people there. You cannot do that. That's just like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. If people are angry. That's what they want. They're just like, just bomb them, just nuke them. And you can't do that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? There's a lot of different wear for stuff that goes into effect. But again, I think from a very, very small and low totem pole, because I was a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps, I was no no staff NCO. I was no lieutenant. I was no captain. I was no major. I was no, nobody making decisions. I was just doing what I was told. I had great leadership at that level at my commanding officer and my XO CEO battalion commander was amazing, but it goes way beyond them. Yeah. And it goes into the white house and it goes into people that make yeah. decisions. And now as an older person, if you're not a Republican or if you're not a Democrat, then you can't say anything because that's how they base it off of, well, we're a Republican party. So we're going to do Republican. We're a democratic party. So we're going to, it's like, how about we do what's good for the people? Yeah. You know, how about we do that? That'd be great. Let's keep politics out of it for a minute and talk about as a human being, what, what should we do? How do we assess the situation? So yeah, I, I get what, where he's coming from being angry. I get it. It's definitely not the full might of the military though. Your hands are tied a lot of times. And the gross thing about things like this is sometimes you're working with a bad guy so that the even bigger bad guy will go down. It's complex, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, they say we're always trying to catch the bigger fish. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do. But again, that goes way beyond my understanding, my scope of work. So I, I can't ever really dime in too much as, as much as I would like to, just because I don't know the whole picture. Yeah. But I do know that's what I've been told my entire career is that 
sometimes we have to do things we don't want to catch the bigger fish. And I'm like, hey, that's what that's that's what it is. That's what it is. What are you doing today, Matthias, to support veterans and some of those efforts? I do a lot of different things with a couple of different organizations. One of them is the Marine Corps League. I, I just started recently getting a little bit more involved with them and just really being, like you said earlier, being a motivational speaker. I've been trying just to get involved with that because I feel like there's a lot of veterans, especially of my era, uh, that are getting out. And a lot of guys are a little jaded. And I think that we could be doing so much more as young veterans to mm-hmm. support each other and the future of veterans. But I, I play on a softball team and I, I recently just recently, recently just started playing less with them because of my career. Um, but because of my injury, I've been able to travel and do so many different things. And one of them is focusing with kids with disabilities and amputations. And we do a uh, kids alumni kids camp and a regular kids camp of softball. And we basically meet these kids throughout the country and we bring them together for a week to teach them the game of softball and really to get them together and and, and a source of peer mediating to help them meet other kids with their same uh, condition or or injury. Uh, Because a lot of times these kids are, are born into this and I never knew an amputee until, until I became one. And so these kids are going to school and getting bullied and called names. And like, I have no, I'm the only one that they don't know any other kids with, with prosthetics. And so now they go to these camps and they get to meet each other and they leave there with such an, you know, an inspirational message that, Hey, life without limbs is limitless is what we always say in our softball team. I like Um, that. And it was really cool, you know, to see these kids. And recently, like I said, my career has taken a little bit over uh, just because I, I do work you know, work full time with the police department and being with my daughter and my girlfriend and and she's a, a nurse. So with everything with the pandemic, we've had very little time to do stuff together, but we try to get out and bike ride and whatever else. But that's one of the biggest things is talking to schools, talking to kids, talking to veterans. We do golf outings. I try to get involved with different organizations. I've done stuff with an organization called Suds, which is a soldiers undertaking disciple scuba. I've done, you know, stuff with skydiving organizations. I've been fortunate enough to work with an organization called Homes for Our Troops, uh, which builds uh, veterans' homes at, at no cost to them, uh, which I was also a recipient of. I mean, Semper Fi Fund, we do a lot of different races. Mm-hmm. I've done runs with Achilles International, uh, which is a, a team of veterans, well, at least a freedom team uh, that does hand cycling and running marathons and whatnot to raise awareness. So really just anything that I can do to get involved with people and, and not just veterans, just anybody to hopefully inspire uh, others is, is good enough for me. I think you would make a big impact with the 20 year olds because I think they really don't understand. I don't think they understand. That's just my viewpoint. You know, I just started doing, uh, I'm being, uh, being a part of the drill team uh, at the police academy. We also do youth academies and sea cadets and explorers and whatnot. And I really enjoy working with those programs because these kids are kind of transitioning from teenagers. So they're like 13 up to like 18, 19 years old. And they're almost on that bridge where they're like, all right, do I want to go here or do I want to go yeah. here? And our voice and our influence has a lot to do with their decision making. And I, I, I'm really grateful for my department to allow me to do that uh, and to work with these youths. And they, when they see my, my injury and then when they see my story, they're like, I have so many questions, you know, and I get really excited that they yeah. do that. Because if, if I went in there and they didn't show any excitement or understanding, um, I think I'd be a little bit more nervous. But these kids are really, they really want someone to look up to. So I think that we just have to do a better job in our fields to be good influences for these kids that have an idea of what they want to do. And not just law enforcement or military, um, nurses, doctors, lawyers, sanitation, teachers, whatever it is that you want to do, 
I think that we're always looking for somebody to look up to, to, to do those, to do those things. So I think it's important that we continue to get better with our youth. Here's a really stupid question. When you jump out of the airplane, <laughs> are you jumping? I didn't have my legs on. I didn't have my legs on. Okay, I'm thinking because those would snap when, they, when yeah. you hit the yeah. I mean, I don't know if they would snap. They, they've definitely made good technology because I'm sure some, I've seen stories of guys losing their legs in midair. Um, and that can be a very dangerous thing because if a thing falls on somebody, it's going to kill them. And it's expensive um, to lose one of those. That's true. It is expensive. But uh, no, I jumped, I jumped tandem with another person. So okay. I had my prosthetics off. And when you land, of course, you just land on your butt, you know, so I would just get up and somebody meets me down on the ground, my legs, I put my legs on, I get up and I'm like, oh my God, here I am. You well, know, the good thing about that, you're landing on one of the cushiest parts of your body. <laughs> yeah, right? it's not so, it's not so cushy falling down that fast. <laughs> That's that. funny. Do you have phantom pains? I think phantom pain is something that you have in the beginning of your injury. Um, it's kind of mistaken for nerve damage. I think that in the beginning and like the first couple of weeks, you're like, oh my God, my leg's not like you try to get off the bed and you're like, oh my God, I forgot that I can't just step off. So that's more related with the phantom pain, but uh, the tingling sensation and the feeling that you get a lot of times is tra uh, the traumatic amputation or, or the, the, the nerve damage. So once you start like, you know, kind of like patting it down and massaging it or something, you get used to it and then it goes away. Do you ever feel that you have toes? From time to time. Yeah. You could still feel the nerves. So it's you're like sitting there. It's crazy because I start like massaging my cap or something. And then I'll like, I'll find like a weird, like, like, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't even know how to describe it, but I find like some kind of feeling and I almost like feel like I can still wiggle my toes. You know, Isn't I guess. Isn't that bizarre? That how can crazy. you explain that to someone unless you they're an amputee? I'm like, oh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, like it's, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's crazy because you can still feel it. Where can we find you on social media? So I usually use Instagram, which is my first name. It's Matias underscore N underscore Ferreira. Um, and then my Facebook is just Matias Ferreira. So I, that's really all I, I got onto um, in the past, I think year and a half, I opened up my Instagram to be public just because I wanted to share my, my story, my life. Um, I post plenty of pictures, you know, of, of my family, you know, my, with my girlfriend, my daughter, uh, work, the military, some, you know, hashtag throwback Thursdays and all that stuff, just so people can see um, a little bit of my life and, and kind of have an idea of things that I've been through and the things that people are capable of going through. And what does America mean to you? America to me is still the best place in the world to live. I know that you and probably more than half of the American people have seen on social media, some of the posts going on in Afghanistan and how people are treated and how women are treated and how children are treated is just beyond my understanding of how we couldn't have what we have here in America everywhere else. I feel like that's just a humanity thing. You know, I feel like people should be treated um, equally and with respect and with love and kindness and compassion. And I think that's what America has to offer. So every time I tell this story, I have to say it in there somewhere. I am living the American dream. I am living what somebody told me I could live, that one day I would be able to go to school and graduate and get a job and have a life and, you know, have a family and everybody enjoy the life of the capacity. Think about it. When I come home, nobody bothers me. I'm in my own home. Nobody's trying to shoot me that I know of or kill me. Nobody's trying to send me to do unpaid labor or force me to do things that I don't want. I live in a country where I can say what I want to a capacity and own. I have you know weapons that I have obtained legally and I can train with them and I have a career um, that I can provide for my family with. So again, I, I just I think that I'm living the American dream. You are amazing. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. Thank you. And I really appreciate for sharing my story with others.
Matthias is a natural storyteller, and if he chooses, I can see a successful motivational speaker in his future. Matthias actively helping his community and is especially engaged in providing a positive, strong role model for America's youth. You can find Matthias on Instagram at M-A-T-I-A-S underscore N underscore F-E-R-R-E-I-R-A or on Facebook at Matthias Ferreira. I am always amazed by the phenomenal guests I speak to every week. As my podcast becomes more well-known, my reach extends to keep bringing you these fantastic guests. This is where you come in. Leave a rating, a review, subscribe. Make sure your family and friends know about the podcast. I am doing a drawing at the end of October. I will give away some fantastic items donated by previous guests. You can be eligible by sharing the We The People Are American Story podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Simply tag We The People Are American Story on Facebook or We The People OAS on Instagram. Like the Facebook page for an additional entry and to find out in the next week about the giveaway prizes. My next guest is Leslie Zimmerman. Leslie has a strong family history of military service. In fact, her sister Julia was a guest on episode 39. Leslie was a sergeant in the U.S. Army, calls George W. Bush a personal friend, and is on his book cover, Portraits of Courage. Until Friday, see you then.